Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, another episode of our Cricketing Hall of Fame, where we're on the countdown for the 100 greatest men's test cricketers of all time. We've reached number 85 on the list, and we're going to talk 85 through 81, all coming up on this episode of the Top Order Podcast, Cricketing Hall of Fame. Stay tuned. So, Baldy, we've given you a lot of grief through the course of this Cricketing Hall of Fame so far. Even got a letter in from your parents um, via our social channels just to um, keep us honest on on making fun of you. But they're um, pretty pleased that your passion project is going as well as it is with the wall-to-wall stats. Um, But just so that no listeners are mistaken here, you've manipulated the stats here to suit your own purpose. And I'm going to let you explain uh, what that means as we discuss number 85 um, and 84 on this list, which if it was the other way around, let's face it, would be um, pretty contentious, at least for one of us in the room here. But over to you, Baldy. Yeah, well, before we open it up to the group, welcome back, everyone, to episode five of the Top Order Podcast Cricket Hall of Fame, 85 through 81. We're going to do 85 and 84 together just by happy circumstance. I don't know how it happened, but these two wicket-keeping players from Australia and South Africa appeared next to each other on the Top Order podcast. So without uh, deciding who's 85th and 84th just yet, we're going to have a look at Mark Boucher from South Africa and Ian Healy from Australia. I'm just going to run through their cricketing CVs before we open it up to questions from the panel. Mark Boucher, 147 test matches, holds the world record for dismissals, 532 catches and 23 stumpings from those 147 tests. He has 5,515 runs and an average of 30.3, so an average just a tick above 30. Highest test score of 125, five centuries, 35 50s for Mark Boucher. Ian Healy, on the other hand, 119 test matches for him, did hold the record for dismissals, 366 catches and 29 stumpings. Uh, 28 of those probably to the bowling of Shane Warne. I have no stats to back that up, of course. Um, 4,356 runs at an average of 27.38. Highest score of 161, not out. 400s and 2250s for Ian Healy. Let's open it up to the panel. I think, Stuart, you've got a leading question that you want to throw into the bonfire first. Yeah, well, look, Baldy, before we get into these two, their, their individual careers, I probably wanted to understand your thinking in terms of ranking rankings for this Hall of Fame on the skill of wicket-keeping, because to me, wicket-keeping is a very specialist skill, but clearly you've put it behind batting and bowling as a skill, because we've seen uh, that we've got these two here down at, you know, in the 80s. We've seen Alan Knott, who we decided was one of the best wicket-keepers there's ever been. And at least, you know, on paper, these two are, are right up there as well. But they're, they're well down the list. And I know there are other batters who have much better, or other wicket keepers, sorry, that have much better batting records that are way further up this list. And so can you just talk us a little about how the skill of actually wicket keeping was compared to those other kind of core skills of batting and bowling? Yeah, you're probably right, Stuart. I think one of the things that going through the Hall of Fame list has has taught me, particularly through version one and having a look at the list once we've compiled all 100, is that it's very, very hard to rank wicket keepers, pure wicket keepers. It's very easy to rank, or not very easy, but it's easier to rank wicket keepers who primarily showed their greatness through their batting against other batters. Andy Flower is a great example, Adam Gilchrist, A.B. de Villiers. We'll get to those guys as we get through the list. 
in terms of pure wicket-keeping, Alan Knott, Ian Healy, Mark Boucher in particular, it's much, much more difficult because other than dismissals, which is subjective to how good your bowling attack was and you know how they bowled, it's very, very difficult to actually find numbers to be able to compare those against batting and bowling. You can compare a batting average of 50 against a bowling average of, say, 25, and, and you can kind of make some comparisons there. Um, it's very, very difficult to do that with wicket keepers. You know, there's very hard to collect metrics about um, the greatness of a wicket keeper. Buys is an imperfect metric. Um, as we said, dismissals, catches, and stumpings are an imperfect metric. Um, percentages of catch taken uh, versus catches missed or opportunities taken, opportunities missed. There's nothing that records any of that. So I found it very, very difficult to accurately rate these wicket keepers. I'm sure we'll have lots of wicket keepers write into the podcast um, or listen to this um, these episodes and say, well, Baldy, you got it wrong. You you ranked some of these great wicket keepers in the 80s and 90s and they should be much much higher i find it very difficult to justify um going too high on some of these wicket keepers and maybe i've got them too low based on the fact that you know it's hard to to compare a guy who is a great wicket keeper versus a guy who averages 50 or averages 22 with the ball well let me kind of jump in here and you don't need me to write into the podcast i'm lucky enough to co-host the bloody thing um, and we've got, you know, Mark Batcher and Ian Healy. Um, and look, I'll just caveat this by saying Ian Healy is my cricketing hero, um, at least until he came into the commentary box and then just really counted how many times the ball bounced until it went for four um, across the outfield. But yeah, you, you make a really good point around the statistics not being there. Um, but I look at probably one of my favourite pieces of um, YouTube wicket-keeping pornography. Uh, and that is a stumping that Jack Russell affected Dean Jones um, off Gladstone Small in Australia um, in the early 1990s. And I'd just say that, you know, he was standing up to a guy that opened the bowling for England on occasions and affected a leg side stumping. For me, that shows the value of a wicket-keeper. That was a chance that wouldn't have even been created if a lesser wicketkeeper, if a guy who could average 35 and hold the gloves and stand back to a seam attack had have been in the team instead of Jack Russell that day. So I, I think there's a confidence um, level that your keeper gives you. And I think the other thing that I, I want to talk about as well, and um, there's plenty of articles written about this, and, and particularly with Ian Healy, um, how good he made Shane Warne at, at times. And that wasn't just that, um, you know, you've got to give credit to the bowler and the comment that you made around um, a keeper can only take the edges or the chances that a bowler um, gives to him. But Healy was such a good foil for Warren in terms of the feedback that he gave him and the fact that he gave him confidence that when he bowled his best ball and it resulted in a chance it was going to get taken um, and really trying to help work a batsman out, um, notwithstanding the odd little chirp there as well. Um, so I think, you know, Healy and Warren combined for, I think, 49 dismissals. When you compare that with Healy and McGrath, you know, there was more edges behind off McGrath. I think there was probably more edges behind off um, even someone like Gillespie as well, um, who took a lot less wickets, obviously, than um, than Warren in his test career. But, um, you know, a, a keeper really gives you that, um, you know, that quality. Baldy, let's get on to the discussion, though, about the, the comparison between these two. They are... Um, neck and neck. Um, I'll now my colours to the mass. I, I don't think um, Boucher is, you know, is 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 fit to reface Healy's gloves. To be honest, let let alone be this close to him on the list. Um, but yeah, talk us through why they are so so close in your eyes. 
Well, I guess it for me it was a, it was a comparison of the eye test and what I saw of both of them. So I've been lucky enough to watch both of them as I was growing up and as a young adult watching both of them play. And for me, one player definitely has all of the eye test metrics down. And and for me, that's Ian Healy. Uh, keeping up to the stumps, keeping back to pace bowling, and just touching on the pace bowling a little bit. Ian Healy turned keeping to pace bowling from a job into an art form. The way that he took the ball, the inside hip, the length of catch, that is now textbook for all Antipodean Australian or at least Australian wicket keepers in terms of their technique. He he basically created, if, if not created, but perfected the technique of wicket keeping in Australia. That length of catch, the inside hip, all the foot movement enabled him to be so good to McGrath to be able to take balls off either inside or outside edge, uh, diving catches in front of first slip, you know, down the leg side, all that stuff. So standing back, Ian Healy for me has the best technique that I've ever seen. Uh, standing back to pace bowlers and certainly has it over Mark Boucher in terms of keeping uh, back. In terms of keeping up to the stumps, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to defer this to you, Adam, and and maybe you, Stuart, as a spin bowler. But to me, Ian Healy again, the technique to to uh, to warn in particular and McGill when he was able to use his just that one right foot step to be able to get across so far and to cover the spin to be able to take big outside inches or edges that bounced and to be able to go with the ball. I certainly feel like he had a better technique and a better artistry of wicket-keeping against spin bowling than Mark Boucher did. So for me, the eye test goes to Ian Healy. What say you, Adam? Oh, it's not even close, mate. If I think about the eye test, and I'll talk about Healy for a second, but um, look, I'm going to be a little bit hard on a guy that's got 500-odd uh, test dismissals, I think, uh, that Boucher has. Um, but I always remember him dropping uh, Michael Atherton in that brilliant spell um, where he was giving Atherton a real, real working over. Um, and, and, you know, Donald was kind of steaming in. Um, for me, though, to your point around Healy and his artistry with the gloves up to the stumps, there's two things that really stand out for me in that technique um, and probably just a, an enduring memory. I think um, is it, just that he used to wear those green and gold um, Kookaburra gloves, the round cuff gloves. And I just always remember all you would see is this massive catching area of yellow rubber that just looks so technically brilliant behind the stumps. Epitomized for me by my two favorite stumpings, I think, that he, that he took. One was Graham Thorpe. Um, off Shane Warne in an Ashes Test match in 1993, where the ball um, was bowled into the kind of rough outside off stump. Um, it was towards the end of the day. Thorpe had a little dance down the wicket. I think there was a chirp involved, or certainly um, in one of the cricketing autobiographies of, of that time, um, there was a, a you know a chirp in there that probably sold a few books, even if it didn't happen. Um, but the ball bounced, and you saw Healy's gloves go up, and then pick his pocket with a fantastic stumping. And then the second one is almost the reverse of that from one that really, really bounced. He got Mark Butcher stumped down the leg side off Michael Bevan, who was bowling, um, I don't know how many Ks, but certainly probably slightly quicker than Darren Stevens' pace um, and just got one down the leg side, um, almost on the half volley. And Healy's picked Mark, uh, Mark Butcher's um, pocket um, with a leg side stumping. And, and those really just epitomise the craft um, that he had. And Boucher, for me, as a keeper, I'd describe him as workmanlike. Um, you know, he, he caught most edges that came his way. Um, he played a lot of test matches for his stumpings. 
In his defense, he didn't play with a spinner anywhere near um, Warren or McGill's class um, in his test career. He would have had um, the likes of uh, Paul Adams, um, Nicky Boye for a, for a period of time, um, perhaps a, a little bit of Pat Simcox, um, but never really had that quality spinner um, to really show his wares. And before I hand over to the guys, I think the other reason that Healy shines for me, four test centuries um, and four first-class centuries. So all of his first-class centuries um, coming in test matches. Always remember the 100 he got in Brisbane um, with Steve Waugh, which really um, set up um, that Ashes series, I think, in 98, 99. Um, and that big 100, 161, I think it was, um, against the West Indies um, being probably the other one that really springs to mind. But um, yeah, for me, uh, there might only be a place between them on your list, but daylight between them in terms of my view of their effectiveness with the gauntlets. I want to attack you a little bit, Baldy. So I'm going to basically ask you here. So Mark Boucher in almost every metric there, uh, a keeping metric and the um, the batting metrics, mm-hmm. he is comfortably ahead of Ian Healy. Yeah. So is this not a uh, an incredible show of nepotism that you're you're thinking that Ian Healy is is much better? Yeah. So I, I scored the bout between Mark Boucher and Ian Healy on on five categories. Keeping up to the stumps was one. Ian Healy wins ten nine. Keeping to spin bowling, he, Ian Healy wins ten eight. Clearly a winner there. Batting Boucher wins ten nine. And in terms of the longevity and the and the pure numbers game, Boucher wins again ten nine. The deciding factor for me is gamesmanship. And what did he? What did Healy do that Boucher didn't do to make his players better? And I think Adam really hit it on the nose. It's that combination of confidence that he gave to his bowlers and also the banter. The banter piece for a wicketkeeper is a little bit, not underrated, but it's certainly there. And I don't think that there's ever been a cricketer that's, that's gotten to more players' heads uh, as a wicketkeeper than Ian Healy. I mean, Boucher had his moments. Let's not forget his sledging match with um, Top Order podcast guest, Zimbabwean uh, wicketkeeper Tatenda Taibu. Uh, but Ian Healy got under everybody's skin, you know, the apocryphal tales of Mars bars on a good length, the right to have a runner. You know, his banter was legendary. Maybe it was too good. Uh, but certainly for me, all other things being equal, uh, Ian Healy's contribution to his team's success, I feel, outweighs Mark Boucher's. And before we we move on, because I know Binksy's just put his finger towards the clock, but uh, we've got to just give a a mention to one of my favourite moments uh, in my cricket watching career when Ian Healy fell off the Segway and and just absolutely gacked it in that test match when he was commentating. That was just fantastic. So uh, I couldn't let this conversation go without mentioning that. Well, thanks for ruining my enjoying memories of my cricketing hero, um, Stu. Um, Raj, you'll be pleased to know on the subject of nepotism, we carry on to yet another Australian on this list um, in the next place. So uh, we'll hand over to, to Baldy um, to defend himself um, yet again. A, a lot of uh, a lot of emus and kangaroos on this list. Yeah, look, there certainly is, but there's nothing wrong with the career of our next uh, subject of 
the Hall of Fame. At number 83, it's the Australian fast bowler Ray Lindwell. 61 tests for Ray Lindwell, uh, and he took 228 wickets in just 60 tests at an, and a bowling average of 23.03. So before we start throwing uh, calls of nepotastical treatment for Australian arounds, that, that's that's a pretty good average, 23.03 of, of Hall of Fame qualifying bowlers. That's 20th of all time. Strike rate of 59.8. He had 12 five-wicket hauls in just 60 tests. So that's a rate of one five-wicket haul every five tests. Of course, his peak bowling was in the 40s and 50s. So 1947-48 took 18 wickets against England at an average of 16. Uh, he took 27 wickets in 1948 uh, in the England Tour of England. Um, at an average of 19, and then in 1953, five years later, took 26 wickets in five tests at an average of 18.84. So his three-peak series, well under 20 in terms of his average. Look, it's all about the average for me. Top 20 average, um, that strike rate of of tests for all 100, 100, no, five-wicket hauls per 100 innings is also uh, right up there as well. A great fast bowler and probably one of the earliest great duos of fast bowling along with Keith Miller for Australia after the end of the Second World War. So I guess I had to do a bit of um, a bit of YouTubing here to have the eye test on uh, Mr. Lindwall. Uh, first thing is I'll point out, he did play for St. George Dragons. Did you guys pick that up when you went through the reading of him? He played in two grand finals. No, I didn't the, um, I didn't pick that up. That's a good get from you. But I, um, I always, when I was playing, I always uh, saved a bit of, a bit of banter for the bowlers and it was about, running in like Tarzan and bowling like Jane. And this is almost the opposite here. He, he ran in like Jane and absolutely bowled like Tarzan. He had a really whippy action. And, and he dropped the ball to his side just before he bowled it. And as a batsman, I don't know why, but I just feel like that's going to hurt when I, when I see him running in like that. Um, I do have one question for you. We'll get to that in a second. Did you know that he was the eighth all-time and most wickets taken via the method of bold. I know that he took over 40% of his wickets at bold. I didn't realise it was that high. I think it was the old two-card trick. He was described as a very intimidating bowler. So I think he gave him the old rough him up with a short ball, get him on the back foot, and then bowl the sort of full and straight, hit the top of off. I did see a lot of cartwheeling stumps in my vision of or watching Ray Lindwell on YouTube. He was very, very quick. Uh, my grandfather was lucky enough to uh, play a bit of country cricket, uh, was in a net next to him, and all he all he saw or, or recognised of Lindwell's bowling was the ball thumping into the back of the net uh, in the net next to him, normally above kind of shoulder height uh, at, in, the, con- in the, the sort of netting at the back there. So he was, he was rapid, absolutely rapid. Yeah, that, that's the thing that stood out for me as well when I was watching that. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about it when we talked about Alec Betzer and, and how kind of on that old film, you know, that some of those scene bowlers back then can look kind of military medium, but Lindwell did not. Lindwell looked quick. I mean, I, I don't know if you, if anyone has any idea of, of how quick he actually was compared to kind of the, the modern players, but certainly he's one of the first people that when you you actually watched that film, there were batters flying all over the place, you know, and, and it's it's a very rare thing for from some of that old footage. So I also wanted to ask you, Vordy. So he was also in that sort of war period uh, there. How did that shorten his his career, or, or or how did you give him some kind of boost for that? Unfortunately, he didn't get much of a boost in terms of my rankings because of his career. He did fall down on some of the longevity kind of statistics because 
he kind of did come in shortly after the war. Like you see, he only played 61 tests, and I'm pretty sure they were all after the end of the war. So there wasn't quite the longevity of, of his career that perhaps he would have enjoyed had war not intervened. So, you know, you have a look at his wickets. 228 wickets is, is kind of ranked 60th. Um, you know, if he had a few more wickets, maybe he would have been a little bit higher. Certainly that average is very good. The strike rate isn't as great as some of the really true elite players of 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 you know test cricketing law um you know his averages uh, so strike rate around about 60 is is about 66 than all of the players that we looked at for the hall of fame yeah for me I, I don't have a massive amount um to add that's not already been said um other than i think when i you know i think about that era of cricket and you i think about my dad talking about um the way those sort of players um particularly that were involved in that sort of era um, and mentioned, you, you hear of Lindwell and Miller, you know, it, it's, you know, it's the equivalent of Gillespie and McGrath or uh, Broad and Anderson um, in terms of, you know, they're, they're synonymous with each other in terms of a, a fearsome new ball bowling attack. The other thing I just want to touch on from a, a wartime perspective, and um, look, th- this kind of really does, um, it's quite evocative when you're, when you're in the Antipodes and, and particularly as an Englishman. Um, that the spirit around that sort of Anzac piece, is, you know, is so key and, and I think defines the character of a lot of these guys. You know, um, I think it's Keith Miller um, quoted, you know, pressure isn't cricket, pressure is a, you know, a Messerschmitt up your ass. Um, and with Linwell, um, an interesting thing, you know, I, I read about him was that, um, you know, army commitments were coming along, obviously, in that wartime period. Um, and he tried to, um, yeah, try, tried to get um, enlisted into um, the Air Force, but he was exempted because his employer um, w- was exempt from being um, needing to serve military service. So he resigned his job so he could join the army, um, and, and that just says everything about uh, this type of uh, this type of cricketer for me. Um, so yeah, that was um, as impressive as as his statistics um, for me. Baldy will move on. We we do move countries, um, so. I'm looking at my list. I'm, I'm imagining we must be going to England um, for the next one. Um, but no, alas, tell us about number 82 on the list, Baldy. We're, we're, we're dipping into some cricketing nations as yet untapped. Yeah, so we move from Australia to the West Indies. And, and 82 in the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame is Sir Frank Worrell from the West Indies. 51 test matches. 3,860 runs at an average of 49.48. Highest score of 261. Nine test centuries in just 51 matches. 22 half centuries. And some some massive peak series. I mean, his peak series uh, for Frank Worrell uh, averaged 147 in 1947-48 against the West Indies. Uh, sorry, against England, I should say, in the West Indies. Average 89 against England in England in 1950. And then 11 years later in 1961-62, averaged 83 against India in the West Indies. So, you know, when he had that peak series, average of 147, 89 and 83, three series averaging 80 plus. A tremendous cricketer, um, but I'm sure it's going to come up. Only 3,860 runs at an average of 49. Yeah, look, I mean, Baldy... I've got another scene setter for you here. I mean, we, we talked earlier about wicket-keeping being a specialist skill and, and kind of potentially not giving en- enough credit to that as batting and bowling. But with the next two guys, actually, captaincy plays a, a role, I know, in, in why you've got him them both here. Mm. I mean, Worrell, Worrell averaged nearly 50 with the bat, so obviously he can bat very, very um, good at that skill. 
but you've got him 10 spots higher than someone like Dennis Compton, who scored 2,000 more runs at test runs at a better average. You know, I know how much you love stats. So kind of, that must have been a bit of a challenge in your mind. And, and can you sort of talk us through why you valued that leadership so highly, at least in Worrell's case? And, and we'll kind of get on to the next one soon. Yeah, look, in, in all walks of life, great leaders are defined in, in many, many ways. And, and a lot of it's hard to measure. Uh, how do you measure team chemistry? How do you measure uh, a player's effect on 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 the performance of other players as a captain? You know, how much better did he make his, his other players? And there's only really one metric that shows that, and that's winning. Um, Frank Worrell captained the West Indies 15 times. He won 9 out of 15 matches. That's a 60% winning ratio. Only two captains in the history of Test cricket have, have a winning ratio better than that. Uh, his win-to-loss ratio, for every Test match he lost, he won three. So his winning-to-loss ratio is three to one. That ranks fourth all time. So for me, the leadership and, and, and all of that that goes with it, his greatness as a cricketer is summed up in those 15 Test matches that he captained the West Indies. Of course, he captained them in Australia in the famous Tied Test Series in 1960 Um and it wasn't just the way that he captained the team in terms of its winning culture, but he set the tone for attacking cricket for, for decades to come. We came out of the 1950s where run weights were slow. Um, it was a ball-dominated game. Batting averages hadn't, hadn't been lower for a long, long, long time. Frank Worrell and, to a lesser extent, Richie Benno from Australia turned around this idea of we're going to play in exciting and attacking cricket and entertaining cricket for the fans. So I give him a tremendous amount of credit in terms of my final spot in the, in the Hall of Fame based on those factors. And you're right, he doesn't have the same batting resume as, as Dennis Compton or a, a lot of players that are around this kind of sort of 80 to 100 mark. But he influenced winning like no other person, I think, for me in this range, other than the guy we're going to probably talk about next. Yeah, for me, for me, it's the the legacy that he's left on the game. Sadly, died at just forty two from leukemia. Um, but again, you know, we hear that name mentioned. Um, you know, Everton Weeks, uh, uh, Frank Worrell, and Clyde Walcott, the three Ws, um, and and I think obviously the trophy named after him as well. Um, but also just the second black captain of that West Indies team, and apparently did that with. Um, you know, such style and panache and um, and look, I, I just guess class was the word that, you know, comes up from all the comments, um, not just the way that he batted, but the way that he um, approached um, captaining, you know, that side and, and bringing together, um, I'm, I'm sure we'll go on to this on our next um, you know, next person on this Hall of Fame list as well. Bringing together all of those islands is no mean feat and um, and to be able to do that, um, you know, at that period of time as well is really just, you know, such credit um, to, uh, yeah, to, to to the great Bayesian. Should he actually be higher, Baldy? I mean, now that we're, we're talking about this, um, you know, I, th I think it, it probably comes down in my head to uh, who has had, they're two different lists perhaps, and, and it's who has had the most impact on test cricket. And I think if you're, you're gauging that, from all I see about Worrell, he should be much higher because, like you said, he's kind of set the tone for the West, not just the West Indies, but for cricket in general for, for a number of years after that. But then, you know, are we talking about that or are we talking about who has kind of performed the best on the cricket field uh, over the, the last 100 and odd years that we've had Test cricket? And you could be great at both, right? You could be a great player. Um, there are a few that come to mind. Uh, Kevin Peterson 
Tremendous player. Wonderful, wonderful cricketer. Great, great batsman. Didn't necessarily make his teammates better. Um, there are there are lots of other cricketers that we'll talk about who are great players, didn't necessarily make their teammates better. David Warner, tremendous batter, not necessarily a great leader. Um, Frank Worrell, Clive Lloyd, those kind of players, tremendous leaders. Richie Benno doesn't have a tremendous test record in terms of his average or his strike rate, but a tremendous leader um, and a tremendous servant to the game of cricket. So you could be great at either at either your chosen discipline um, or your, your greatness can kind of transcend the traditional batting, bowling, fielding disciplines. So um, there is room for a combination of both of those things. I had to have Frank Worrell on this list purely because of his leadership. I didn't really care what his statistics were. I had to have him in there purely for leadership. You might be right. He might be ranked too low in terms of his overall legacy of greatness. Uh, but when you factor in some of the tremendous personal achievements that others have made, it's it's kind of hard to, to, to rate those. And I've done my best. Perhaps Frank Worrell maybe maybe gets a bump or two up in version two of the Top Order Podcast Hall of Fame just on that leadership aspect. So we move on from one West Indian to another. Another sir, a Wisden Cricketer of the Year in 1971. You've mentioned his name already, um, Baldy, but tell us a little bit more um, about Sir Clive Lloyd. Yeah, Sir Clive Lloyd, kind of following on from Sir Frank Worrell, really. I mean, it's a, a little bit later in terms of he sort of came around in the, the late 60s, early 70s. 110 tests for Sir Clive Lloyd, 7,515 runs at an average of 46.67, a higher score of 242 not out. 1900s uh, and 3950s uh, for Clive Lloyd, of course, batting left-handed, uh, you know, the glasses for me, uh, probably the most iconic piece of of facial accessory uh, just about in the history of sport, certainly in the history of cricket. Um, so, you know, look, we talk about great captains. We talk about players who change the narrative of the fortunes of this, of their country. Um, and Clive Lloyd is right up there with Sir Frank Worrell, probably even surpasses Frank Worrell really as a leader. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to forget that in the 1970s, even after the success of the West Indies under Worrell, 1975, West Indies were routed by Australia. 5-1 in that test series. My dad watched the Sydney test in 1975, and he said Australia just dominated the West Indies from start to finish. Sir Frank Worrell, uh, sorry, Sir Clive Lloyd inherited that team, bound them all together, figured out that fast bowlers who bowl short and having not just two but four of them is a winning formula, figured all of that out, got the right players in, and got them to work together towards this kind of single goal of dominating Test cricket. And, and he started an era that lasted for almost 20 years, really. It wasn't until 93, 94 that we started to think that the West Indies were beatable at home or anywhere. Uh, so he's got to take a lot of credit for that. Sure, there's got to be all the players that, that supported him. They've got to be great fast bowlers. There have to be great batters. It helps if you have Viv Richards in your team. But Clive Lloyd led all of those guys um, and drove West Indian cricket forward in a period where they were really, you know, had an uncertain future. Yeah, for me, it's apt that Worrell was actually before uh, Lloyd here. And we can see that, you know, Worrell was a, a giant in, um, in the game of cricket, especially for the West Indies. But Lloyd actually stood on his shoulders and, and elevated the West Indies to that superpower that they, they actually got to in that, that sort of two decades um, there, the 70s and the 80s. Um, I also find it interesting that you mentioned about, you know, Viv Richards, about all these bowlers that they had. 
I reckon the um, the skill of actually harnessing all those egos, all that sort of bravado, and channeling that into winning games is actually something that's very uh, is taken for granted. Uh, and I'm happy that he has come up high on this list because doing that is a real skill, and and it's it shows it shows what his legacy really is on on West Indies cricket. You you're spot on there, Raj, and and um, you know I think we also need to to give Clyde. Clive Lloyd's batting a mention. I know, um, you know, when I sort of, when you just purely look at those statistics, what stood out to me the most was actually just how remarkably similar they are to Ross Taylor's. Um, actually, in terms of matches played, runs, hundreds, averages, they're actually all very, very similar. But, you know, here's Clive Lloyd sitting, at, you know, at 81. And, you know, my little gripes here that, that there's not many New Zealanders in here and Ross Taylor's not even in one of them. But, you know, Clive Lloyd started his career really slow. And then you look at his final 85 tests, he averaged over 51 uh, in that time. And that was really when, when, as you say, the West, he's taken over his captaincy. The West Indies is rising as a force, and you know, an, an almost unbeatable force as a cricket nation. I think uh, we'll get another New Zealand mention in here that we did beat them in a test series uh, in 1980 here at, at home in New Zealand. Uh, Gary did. Troop and Stephen Bock kind of running a league by. I remember old footage of that. Uh, we, we may have had some help from the umpires, but look, we just won't really uh, dwell too much on that. But yeah, boy, when you when you go back and watch some of that old footage of, of Clive Lloyd and just the, the power that, that everyone kind of talked about, the massive bat that he had. Richie, there was a, a great Richie Benno little line. I mean, his lines are littered everywhere, of course, but, you know, he, sm- he got a short ball, hooked it for six, and it went, that's gone for six. If it was a bigger ground, it would have gone for eight. It's just... It's just it's just tremendous and um, yeah, very very uh, quality person to watch. Yeah, for me, just a word on that bat. Apparently, three pounds uh, four ounces were the bats that he used. Apparently, he had to have four grips on it um, to get his hands um, um, nicely round that handle. And um, yeah, I mean that's two of my bats to be perfectly honest. Three pounds four ounces. And um, and yeah, the kind of floppy hat and just um, for me, um, in a lot of ways, he's just demeanour. he's the precursor to the universe boss in terms of just how cool he was um, as a West Indian um, cricketer, rocking, you know, the glasses, which apparently he got poked in the eye with a ruler when he was a kid, which is why he wore the the glasses. So, um, yeah, but who could wear that floppy hat, have a three pound, four ounce bat um, and the glasses and look cool? He he seemed to manage it. um, And those 27 um, undefeated test matches um, in a row, um, yeah, is you know is is a, a fantastic stat um, and one that you know whilst it might might have been beaten, it, you know it's certainly um, pretty close to invincible. Yeah, just to touch on that winning percentage and those those streaks of Test matches, and yeah, we have to give them credit. Um, New Zealand did beat the West Indies in one. I think they only lost one or two series in that in that time that that they were really truly dominant, and, and New Zealand beating them was on one occasion. Just to give the New Zealand fans some context here. The West Indies losing percentage is 16% over that period of Clive Lloyd's captaincy. To give them an idea, to give the New Zealand sort of fans an idea of how good that is, the All Blacks like all-time winning percentage is 77%. So that's a 23 and a bit, 22 and a bit percent losing percentage. The West Indies cricket team over that period only lost 16% of their games by comparison. That's how dominant they were against the rest of the world. So, you know, for, for New Zealand fans, that's a that's a kind of comparison that I think hits close to home in terms of how, just how successful and how dominant that team was under Clive Lloyd. Awesome. Well, that wraps up 
this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. We will be back um, in your feeds with our next instalment, which is all prepped um, and ready to go. Um, and suggestions can fly in via our social media. Let us know what the ratio um, of POMs, um, Aussies and other nations will be in our next uh, five um, on our social media channels. Um, but look, jokes aside, Baldy, this is turning into um, a labour of love every single week. Um, there's more and more algorithms, more and more spreadsheets. Your own API, I believe, um, you're going to be selling this to Crick Info uh, very, very shortly. Me, uh, Raj and Lippy will be out of a job as you get uh, snapped up for um, this Rainman-esque level of staticism. Um, but that does wrap up this episode of the Cricketing Hall of Fame. Please do dip back into the back catalogue. There's heaps going on in the world of cricket. We've got cancellations. We've got T20 tournaments galore. Uh, we've hopefully got an Ashes uh, coming up very soon, which we love to talk about on the podcast. Um, but for now, it's good night and God bless from us all here at the Top Order podcast. Uh, stay tuned for your next fix. See you soon.